Let's open our Bibles to the little minor prophet of Nahum. Nahum. Lord, have mercy upon us in this second assembly and bless us to exalt Thy sovereign majesty and power to the high heavens where it is. Amen. I will finish at the hour. So get that thought out of your mind and embrace these passages that I read to you that have more verses than usual. And enjoy them with me and find some that delights your soul that you can take comfort in. Amen. There is so much that could be said on this subject. It could be, it could be worked with for many, many weeks. Nahum. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. The king of Assyria was Sennacherib. So there's quite a bit to say about this king in the Bible. Here we go. Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh. When you read a book or you find a chapter in Isaiah or Jeremiah where it says the burden of Egypt or the burden of Babylon, you can know what that chapter is about or what that book is about. This is a condemnation of the Assyrian Empire and its leadership of King Sennacherib and his ambassador and the general of his armies, the spokesman, Rabshaki, and the, the blasphemous accusations and charges and statements that they made to Israel. The burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserveth wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before His indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. But with an overrunning flood, He will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds 
in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Amen and amen. That's Sennacherib. And I hope you enjoyed some of the statements that were made about him. Verse 12, Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, that is, Assyria was so powerful and such a large nation, they were not in distress. It was a quiet country because no one attacked Assyria because of their greatness. Though they be quiet, and likewise they be many, they had a huge military, yet thus shall they be cut down, as Stephen told you, 185,000 in one night, when he shall pass through. When the Lord goes through that nation, he is going to cut them down. And when Sennacherib passed through Israel, he was cut down. And just wonderful things that are said here about afflictions not going to rise up a second time, because when I do this against the Assyrian Empire, I won't need to redo it. It'll be good enough on the first pass. And so you want to rejoice in this. You know, I didn't know what Nahum was about. It You tipped off in the first little sentence there. It's about Nineveh. And we've preached through it before rather quickly. It's on our website. But you can tie in Nahum. You can tie it in with Isaiah. And, and a number of chapters there that are about the Assyrians. And you can see how that the Lord is talking about the enemies of His church and His own adversaries and how He's going to destroy them. Some of the terminology is wonderful. Like verse 6, Who can stand before His indignation when God is angry? Doesn't it say in Psalm 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Because who can stand before His indignation? Now what got Him indignant? What got him indignant was Sennacherib and Rabshak. He's standing outside the walls of Jerusalem and saying some pretty naughty things to the people that stood on the wall. What Stephen read to you from Isaiah. You know, I've destroyed all the nations that trusted in idols and their idols were bigger and better than Jerusalem's idols. Because Jerusalem didn't have any idols. Not when Hezekiah was their king. Jerusalem was worshiping the invisible God, the Lord Jehovah. No wonder little Rabshaki and Sennacherib couldn't see the idols of Jerusalem because they didn't have any. And so they presumed that they were communicating this deep, spiritual, theological truth if we're able to destroy nations that had significant idols and temples built to those idols, it'll be easy to take care of Israel because your idols are less than those of those nations we destroyed. Wrong. Hezekiah wasn't trusting in idols. Hezekiah laid the letter before the Lord, and the Lord said, The virgin daughter of Zion hath laughed thee to scorn. And the Lord was indignant. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Those are not my words. Those are not the words of Shakespeare. Those are not the words of anyone, but the words of God inspired in the Bible. Do you like them? Do you like your Bible? 
I didn't get this one in a flannel graph lesson either when I was young. Anybody remember flannel graph? Okay. It's a young church and you've been converted for a while. I love the truth of chapters like this. This is power. These are the enemies of God. There was a church in the Old Testament. It was the nation of Israel. This was one of their big enemies. Did God protect them? They had marched through Judea. They had taken Samaria. They had taken Samaria, the the ten tribes, captive. And now they're surrounding Jerusalem. And Hezekiah comes in before the Lord. And bad things are happening fast to Hezekiah all at once. He is sick. He is told he's going to die. And he's got the Assyrian army around his city. But he comes before the Lord. And he says, Lord, look at what they're saying about you. Oh, that's all. Moses did it. Lord, if you don't get your people all the way to Canaan, the Egyptians are going to say you couldn't pull it off. That's all you got to say. Because of these words. Verse 2, the first three words. Do you know how to pray? God is jealous. Appeal to His name, His honor, His integrity, His glory, His worship. He gets jealous. And Sennacherib and Rabshak, he said some things they shouldn't have said. And so God is jealous and he revengeth. And this language is just wonderful here. And we should embrace it and love the God that is behind this. In the middle of all this fury and fire and rocks being thrown down. Did you notice what it said in verse 10? Not 10. 7. Not 10, verse 7. Notice that it sticks in a little bit of comfort for the Lord's people that while all this trouble is falling down from heaven in judgment upon the Assyrians around the church, look at the church. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. You you folks that are on the inside of the city wall, you're going to be fine. It's the one on the outside of the wall that it's going to be trouble with. Do you understand that the Lord can hedge you in, hedge them out, destroy them, and be good to you all at the same time in the same set of circumstances? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and it was a day of trouble in Israel, and He knoweth them that trust in Him, and they had a king that trusted in them whose name was Hezekiah. And so it turned out very well. I don't know where to go. I've got so many pages and so many verses. Can I just go wherever I feel like it? Okay, thank you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 20 that Chris just read to us. Now I like Nahum 1, 1 through, the, the whole chapter is great. And Lord, we're thankful for it. And you have delivered your church in the past. And you're going to deliver us in the future. You know that uh, a time is coming that metaphorically is described The devil is going to be released from the bottomless pit and he is going to go out and gather all the nations together and they are going to come up and encircle the camp of the saints. That is metaphorical language that there is going to be an all-out assault against Christianity. It doesn't have to be physical. If you can only think of in the terms of M1 Abrams and Korean nukes and Russian planes, you just have a very weak mind. When it comes to scripture, and I'm not pick, I'm sorry. There's been so much garbage thrown at us about prophecy. If you will, that hasn't worked in the past. Those efforts haven't worked. Those efforts have made a stronger church and great martyrs and great preachers and great saints. 
It's going to be an assault against Christianity of a different sort. And part of it is the perilous times of the last days that we're in right now. But let's realize the Lord's going to deliver us again. Now the next deliverance is going to be rather spectacular. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ, in Christ, in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And our backs are going to be singed by the fire that is going to fall on this planet and burn it up with an, with a, with a melting fervent heat as Second Peter chapter three describes it. There is one resurrection coming. Not two. One resurrection coming. The righteous and the wicked will be raised. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. One, one resurrection. There is no such thing as a rapture where the righteous are taken out of the world, leaving the wicked here in charge for seven years. All of that is a total pile of junk. Mark the calendar. One resurrection. And we will be with the Lord and this place will be burned up and there will be a new heaven and new earth and the judgment will take place. God doesn't need a millennium. God doesn't need ten millenniums to judge every man individually and bring everyone before the tribunal of heaven, including the devil and his angels. He'll just get that over with and we'll be in the presence of the Lord forever. He'll deliver His church. It won't be Hezekiah. It'll be the son of Hezekiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It won't be David. It'll be the son of David. And that that metaphorical picture of him on his white horse with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and his name is the Word of God, and his white horse is dripping with the red blood of his enemies, and he's calling upon all the fowls of heaven to come and eat them, eat the flesh of kings and of captains and of generals, because he will have trampled the fierceness of the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. This is a day that is coming, and we gain our confidence in it and our strength in it and our faith in it by reading about these events that were impossible to occur in those days. Assyria was was the mightiest nation on earth at this point, but Babylon took it down. The Chaldeans destroyed it, and the book of Nahum is about that. Then the Lord sent Cyrus, as Brother Newell read from Isaiah 46, in which you read Isaiah 45 last night, and destroyed the Babylonians. Then Alexander the Great came and destroyed the Persians. And then the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and shall never be given to other people. Do you want to read a little bit about that kingdom? Do you want to know how you got into it? You lazy, idle Gentiles that stood around all day and did nothing. And we get pulled in at the end. You with me? Watch. I'm not going to read it again, Chris. You read it just fine. I just want to go right to its bottom line. The invitation. I want to go right to the invitation. You remember? This is the kingdom of heaven. The first verse says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man. This is a man that was a householder and he had a vineyard and he needed day laborers. He went out in the morning at 6 o'clock and got his first batch. He went out at 9 and got some more. At 12 he got some more. At 3 he got some more. And at 5 he needed some to finish up the day. So he goes out and he finds some men standing around with their hands in their pockets, slouching against the wall, Chewing gum, 
And he says, why aren't you guys working? No man's hired us. I'll hire you. Get out in the field for an hour. And I'll give you what's right. And then when they came, all came in to get paid at 6 p.m. that night, some had worked 12, some had worked 9, some 6, some 3, and some 1. And he paid them all a penny. And the ones that had worked all day and bore the heat of the day, they said, that's not fair. Friend. I love the, the Word of God. Friend, I thought we had an agreement. And I thought that we shook when you went into the field that you'd get paid a penny for the day. You Jews are getting everything that you deserve. You've had the worship of God your entire lives. You good Jews that have been faithful for many years, why are you bothered by publicans and harlots coming into the kingdom of heaven at the fifth at five o'clock in the afternoon? You're, you're getting the whole kingdom of God. You have the love of your Father in heaven and everything else that you ever wanted to have and ever thought you needed to have. Is verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Who are you to tell me about the orderliness of my kingdom and how I should pay and who should be paid more and who should be paid less or should all be paid alike? It is not your place to tell me. Is it not lawful? Doesn't it make sense? Is it consistent with my sovereignty as the Lord of this vineyard to do what I will with mine own. I had a contract with some at 6, 9, 12, 3, and 5. Can't I pay them whatever I choose to pay them? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Was the older brother's eye evil because the father was good to the prodigal? Do you remember? The father was good to the prodigal. The elder, fa- the elder son came in from the field and heard the noise of a party, and it bothered him. Here I have served faithfully, and I have not done what these publicans and harlots do, but you've never thrown a party for me. But son, everything I have is yours. Remember? And so it was with publicans and harlots who hadn't lived a righteous life, they had not been to the synagogue, nor did they care about the reading of the Scriptures, nor were they serious in their worship of God, and their their private habits of prayer and Scripture reading were not up to par, and the Lord just brought them in at 5 o'clock, and they were converted and made equal members in the kingdom of heaven, right along with those who had lived that way righteously all their lives. And the greatest example are the Gentiles that are brought in at the end after 1,500 years of Jewish history. Here come the Gentiles and they're grafted in to be equal with the Jews. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? We are talking about the sovereignty of God. And I do not want to spend very much time getting off track to talk about... I've just told you what what the parable is all about. But I don't want to, I don't want to belabor that. I want to belabor this. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Because I do something good by letting publicans and harlots come in and be equal members of my kingdom and my church along with you who may have all, who may have been faithful, somewhat faithful. It could even be self-righteous faithfulness, but you haven't been harlots. Is your eye evil because I am good to such men? Is your eye evil because I save Gentiles? And it was evil. When you read the pages of the New Testament, the Jews were envious of the Gentiles being converted. 
So the last shall be first and the first last. Some of those that were converted last were put at the head of the line and brought into the church and made important members of that church like Zacchaeus. And we just go down the list of different men that were converted and those that were first or thought they should be first. The Jews that had been there for 1,500 years since Moses were made last in a sense that the order was reversed from what they thought should be. For many are called, but few are chosen. God's sovereignty expressed by that simple little rule. Many are called. Many may think that they have an interest in the things of the kingdom of heaven, but only those that Jesus Christ and God have called have a real interest in it. That 15th verse is powerful and weighty. Thank you, Lord, for it. And thank you for for grafting in us Gentiles. And remember from Romans chapter 11, it was to make them jealous that they would see the blessings upon the Gentiles and it would turn to the conversion of some among the Jews that were God's chosen people. Remember when we learned that in Romans 11? Let's turn back just a couple of pages to Matthew 18 and let me share a verse that is there about the sovereignty of God. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? The Lord did. Did his ten wicked brothers send Joseph to Egypt? Yes, they did. Which party was guilty of a sin? The ten brothers. Was God guilty of a sin? Not at all. It was their wickedness that he directed, controlled, managed, purposed, and planned to use their wickedness because of envy that they had built up over many years about Joseph being Jacob's favorite. So they had that fuming hatred in their hearts and the Lord just channeled it into the direction of getting him to Egypt. What passed by when Joseph was in a pit and the brothers wanted to kill him? Now, they wanted to kill him. So their their murderous intents were to kill him, but he was kept alive. Who kept him alive? God did. Who else? Reuben. What happened by right then at that moment that gave Reuben a pretty good excuse? Ishmaelites going down to who does all these things? Our God does all these things. Who was guilty in that transaction? The ten brothers. There is no guilt upon God whatsoever. He preserved his life and he got him down to Egypt. He raised up the Ishmaelites. Who knows? They might have started out a week early. And a Listen, anything is possible when my God's behind it. That's why I said what I just said. But that train of Ishmaelites arrived right at the right time. And so when we look at those kind of events, a sinful act arranged, managed, directed, ruled, planned, purposed by God, he isn't guilty. He didn't put the envy in those ten brothers' hearts. He didn't fill them with vengeful, murderous thoughts. They had that stemming from their sin nature that they got from Adam. That was all of them. And the Bible is filled with events like that, the greatest of which, which I mentioned to you on Wednesday evening, is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, where with wicked hands they crucified the Lord of glory. But did every aspect of that crucifixion fulfill, let's use the words again, purpose, 
plan, intent, control, rule, and sovereign will of God? Was it God's will for Jesus to die a crucifixion death on the cross? Had God purposed that from the foundation of the world? Was He wicked? Was God wicked? No. Who killed the Lord Jesus Christ directly? Who were the active agents? The Jews and the Romans. But it was according to His determinate counsel and foreknowledge so that every detail turned out exactly as it had been prophesied. And when you read through the Gospels and you read about them casting lots for His garment because His garment could not be divided. It was one piece of cloth. The Lord arranged all that in order to fulfill they cast lots for my garment. Now here's a problem. They shall look upon Him whom they have pierced. How are we going to get him pierced? Romans don't pierce. Romans break legs. But not a bone of him shall be broken. Was that a prophecy? How do you arrange this? The soldiers come around, break the legs of the first thief. He can't hold himself up any longer and suffocates. They do it to the other thief. Jesus is already dead. So just for good measure, pierced his side. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and not a bone of him shall be broken, according to the determinate counsel of our God. Acts 2.23, Acts 4.27. Wonderful passages of Scripture. They're short, though, so I have, I'm not turning you to them. But, and they're wonderful. Okay, were the Jews guilty of the blood of the Son of God? Did God annihilate their nation? Did God level their nation for that sin and transgression? Yes, because they were guilty. Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses! Exclamation point. This is woe upon someone that commits sins. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. Who says it needs be? God does. God needs certain offenses to accomplish His will. Like the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the betrayal by Judas. And the death of His apostles. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh! Exclamation point. You want to hear the sovereignty of God? Consider that text for a minute or two. And I've given you two examples, at least, to think about. And that is Joseph with his brethren, how that God sent him to Egypt, and yet it was the ten brothers that sent him to Egypt. There must needs be offenses to get Joseph down to Egypt by God's plan on how he was going to get him there, but the ten brothers were guilty for doing it. And so we have the text, and it's true of the Lord Jesus Christ's crucifixion as well. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh individual sinners that sin against God, even when God is using their sin, God will punish them and hold them accountable for it. As when you had Isaiah 10 read to you that God was going to hold Sennacherib guilty for having punished his people Israel and thinking so arrogantly about it that he was able to go and take cities as if he was picking up leftover eggs. He said it's like a nest. 
You know, it's like finding a nest. I just go and raid the nest of its contents. Now this is, this is the, uh, this is Sennacherib. And it's the Lord quoting him in Isaiah 10. And the Lord said, I will punish the, the, the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. And he did with, a, with his army being killed while they're in their beds one night and then him being killed by his sons. And the Lord's operated that way in so many different cases in the Bible of when he uses the transgression of a man because he needs to have an event done and he directs his judgment. He needed to get Israel out of Egypt. So there was a man that said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God hardened his heart by withdrawing his mercy, kindness, grace, uh, whatever kindness he had shown toward him until his heart was violent against the nation of Israel, even though there were ten plagues already fulfilled, he still followed the nation of Israel down to the Red Sea to his own destruction. This subject is what makes God God in that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. We had read this morning Romans 9. Let's go there now. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Yes, I quoted this verse twice to you at least on Wednesday evening, but... I did not have it before you, and now you get to have it before you. Thank you, Matthew, for reading these verses. Verse 17, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Who said unto Pharaoh? God said to Pharaoh, through Moses. But here in the New Testament, I just want you to know that when when the Scripture says something, it's the same as God speaking. Because God's the one that spoke where this quotation comes from. These little, these little quotations from the Old Testament sometimes shed great light in showing us the authority and power of Scripture. For the Scripture saith, Amen. for the Scripture saith, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Well, the Scripture didn't raise up Pharaoh. God raised up Pharaoh. But I want you to remember that the words were spoken to Pharaoh's face. It was not God, God telling Moses, this is what's going to happen. You know, you're going to go down into Egypt. You're going to talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And uh, Moses, I've raised Pharaoh up for this purpose. You know, I'm going to crush him and get myself a name in all the earth. That would be okay if it happened that way, but it didn't happen that way. It was better than that. God told Pharaoh to his face. Do you love that God? I love that God. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And remember the Philistines were remembering it 500 years later when the Ark of the Covenant was hauled into battle where it shouldn't have been. It, it was remembered. And, and we're, we're kind of, uh, you know, uh, 3,500 3, years later, we're remembering it. In all the earth, right. in another hemisphere, from Israel. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. He's drawing a conclusion from verses from verse 15. And whom he will he hardeneth. He's drawing a conclusion from verse 17 about Pharaoh. Thou wilt then say unto me. Thou wilt say then unto me. Here, here is Paul by the Holy Spirit raising an objection that men throw up against God. Thou wilt say then unto me. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? How can God find fault with Pharaoh and drown him in the Red Sea 
when Pharaoh was fulfilling the will of God? Now that is a good theological question. Let's work up a serious outline to answer it. Does Paul say that? This is where we humble our... Remember, Jerry? I won't tell on you. You've told on yourself in the past about a wonderful day we had in the office when things fell into place for Jerry about this whole matter. Because right here is the answer. In the next verse. The next two verses. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Nay, but, O man... Who art thou that repliest against God? What's the reply against God? What's the rebellious statement against God? What's the bad attitude toward God? What's the bad action toward God? Asking a question like this. Why doth he yet find fault? How can God find fault when Pharaoh was fulfilling God's will? Because the Bible does tell us more than what is right here, God has two wills operating at two different levels, and He is not inconsistent whatsoever at all. He is perfect and just and right. He has His secret things of what He is going to do and what will happen in this world, and He has His revealed things of what we are supposed to do with the responsibility that we have before Him as responsible creatures. Pharaoh's responsibility was to salute when Moses first appeared before him and said, The Lord hath said, Let my people go. Pharaoh should have saluted and worshipped the high God of heaven and said, Moses, you may take your people whenever you want to go, and I will pay for their way to Canaan. Would that have been cheaper than what happened? Oh, that would have been cheaper. Do you get the lesson for you? There is a cheaper way. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. Pay the Lord now. Let's pay our vows today. Lord, I am vile. Save me by your grace. Continue to teach me and show me your ways. And show me you. Glorify thyself to me. We will follow you. We will flush anything that you disapprove of in our church. Let's pay him now. Pharaoh should have paid him then. That would have been keeping the revealed will of God. The secret will is that God was going to get himself some glory upon the greatest nation on earth by leaving that man to himself. And that man to himself had never been told that what he was going to do in his whole life. And for that little Moses to appear and tell him, you let my, you better let my people go. You better let my people go ten different times, ten different plagues. That was too much for Pharaoh and the Lord just leaving him. That provoked him, irritated him. Flies in your bread would irritate you. Frogs in your bread would irritate you. That was irritating stuff. Do you know how much the land stank when the bulldozers were bulldozing up piles of frogs? These verses to me, they're, they're very, very personal to me. Verse 19 is very personal to me because God spoke to me so powerfully at around the age of 20 about the sovereignty of God with those words, why doth he yet find fault? That is from a natural standpoint, from a human perspective, a logical question. Why does God still fault Pharaoh when Pharaoh was accomplishing his will, because whom the Lord wills, he hardens whom he wills. How, how can that work? And God be, 
Nay, but, O man, stop right there. Who art thou that repliest against God? And questions like that are out of place. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? No. Something formed does not talk back to the one that formed it. Because the one that the thing that is formed is so inferior and subject to the will of the one that formed it, it should shut up and not say anything. And my answer is, our God is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Amen. Habakkuk 2.20 Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Why did you make me a vessel for your glory to be spread through the earth for 3,500 years by my rebellion. And God, holy in all His ways, never made Pharaoh rebel. Pharaoh rebelled because he wanted to rebel. Pharaoh rebelled because he had never been told what to do in his life. Pharaoh rebelled because he couldn't afford to lose two to three million slaves that were building the cities of Egypt. Pharaoh rebelled because he was a sinner. God simply channeled and directed, planned, purposed that rebellion on the part of Pharaoh to accomplish his will. Woe to the man by whom offenses come. But offenses need come, and this offense by Pharaoh needed to come. But woe to the man by whom it comes. As Jesus once said of Judas, Brethren, do you want to hear sovereignty? It had been better if that man had not been born. Was that man born? No wonder Job said, you know, I wish I'd have been a stillbirth. Stillborn. Hadn't seen the light of day. But thanks be to God, brethren, we were born. And we've been born twice. And it makes all the difference in the universe. We are the children of God by that second birth. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The answer to the question is an obvious yes. The potter can make any kind of vessel he wants to make. And he made a vessel in Pharaoh for one end, and he made a vessel in Moses to a completely other end, and they both came out of the same lump. And for anyone that thinks that the subject here is national privilege and national blessings, you should start out in verses 6 through 8, and well, find out in the first five verses, which is the introduction to the chapter, that it's all about salvation. Because it's the children of God that are in verse 8 that are being described. And verses 22 through 24, which are the next three verses here, are about salvation whom He hath called unto glory. This is all about salvation. What do you think the book of Romans is about? National privilege? There is no national privilege in the New Testament, but Gentiles have been brought into something by which God chose them to be vessels of glory. And it's into the grace of God. Isaiah 45. Since we just were introduced to the potter, let's go get another verse about the potter that you read last evening. Isaiah 45. Could it take us a while to get through Isaiah 45? Indeed. Indeed. I hope you like Isaiah 45. 
Verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Have you noticed all the exclamation points that we have encountered today? (coughs) That's the Lord putting some emphasis on some of these statements. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. How is the man striving in Romans 9, 19 through 21? By asking questions that were out of line. Soldier, that is out of line. You don't have a right to ask that. Your pay grade isn't high enough for that question. You say, I don't like being talked to that. Love being talked to that way. It's the God of heaven. You're his son. Did you hear, Colin? We can wrestle with the Lord as the children of God. We can prevail. The Lord's made himself vulnerable that Jacob defeated this God that I've read about all day today. Jacob defeated him and had his name changed to Israel because the Lord said to him, as a prince, you have prevailed and won this wrestling match. Because we're the children of God and He's made Himself vulnerable to us. And by the Lord Jesus Christ in a new and living way into the Holy of Holies, we can go boldly to the throne of grace. And prayer changes things. Prayer absolutely changes things. Isn't that... I hope that everybody can see it all in the sense that we are describing the enemies of God and His adversaries that He reigns fire and fury upon and His children. He is protecting them, hedging them in, delivering them, and He is vulnerable to them. That is the difference of salvation. And do you know what is right here in the middle? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most transcendent, sovereign transaction in the history of the universe in the doctrine of imputation. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Isaiah 45, 9. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. What is a potsherd? A broken piece of pottery. Let the broken pieces of pottery argue among themselves, but don't let a broken piece of pottery bark against the potter. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. What man one time said, I'm a hair lip and I can't speak? Moses. Did he eventually go to Egypt anyway? And the Lord is merciful to him with Aaron. But uh, the Lord is pretty severe on him over there in Exodus 3 and 4. Hold your hand there and just turn to Exodus. I want you to all have confidence about this matter. We trust the Lord for our height. We trust the Lord for our intellect. We trust the Lord for our coordination. We trust the Lord for our bodies. We humble ourselves before His sovereignty. Exodus 4.11, this is what the Lord said to Moses. And the Lord said unto him, Exodus 4.11, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing? Or the blind? Have not I the Lord? If I said to you, go down to Egypt and say this to Pharaoh, you should go down into Egypt and say this to Pharaoh. You shouldn't be worrying about that you're not very good in public. And you get nervous when you have to speak before important people and you've just spent the last 40 years of your life talking to sheep. Go down there. Because I made all these things. Don't tell me about you being slow of speech. 
I'm in charge of all that. Let's always remember these things about every part of our lives. Sometimes it will be painful. Sometimes it will put a burden upon us. But thy God reigneth. And if we respond properly, if we respond properly to negative events that happen in our lives, it is the highest measure of Christian character development. And God will bring glory out of the ashes. And we must trust Him and believe Him and pursue Him and humble ourselves before Him and be thankful to Him. Isaiah 45. You're kidding me. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth, What makest thou or thy work? He hath no hands. No, we don't talk that way to the potter. Look at Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah 18. I got to close. Hurry. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah which the, from the Lord, saying, Jeremiah 18, 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. This is going to be a visual demonstration, a show and tell. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Saith the Lord, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. There's an object lesson. There was a potter at a spinning wheel, his first attempt. Oh, that's ugly. He smashed it down, put it together in a ball again and started all over. And the Lord said, can't I do that with you? Amen and amen. Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. I gave you this about a, I don't know, six months or a year ago. Time goes so fast. This was... Are you right side up in an upside down world? Do you remember that? The importance of bubbles to those that are scuba diving. The importance of being instrument rated to someone who is flying a plane at night over the ocean. Verse 16. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not. Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding. These are just a couple more expressions in the Bible about the potter and the clay. You remember Isaiah 45, 9. You remember Romans 9, 20 and 21. You remember Jeremiah 18. You remember Isaiah 29 right here. The whole world around us is turning things upside down and the Lord looks at it like clay talking back to the potter because God told us a certain way to do things and they are turning those things upside down. But I have an answer for all of you today from the Lord It's three words. It's got an exclamation point at the end. I began with it hours ago. It's Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Thy God reigneth. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.